people can be really stuck in fear and anger and wanting to get things for themselves because they think if they don't do that, somehow they'll end up empty. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Sue Johnson, an internationally recognized leader in the field of couple interventions. She's known for her breakthrough clinical research on using emotions in therapy and shaping secure, lasting bonds that create resilience. Her new book is Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you on. Your book is called Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. And we'll get into it in a second here, but we're going to start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandfather who's talking with his granddaughter, and he says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and she thinks about it for a second and looks up at her grandfather. She says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Yes. Well, it's a really interesting parable. I liked it a lot. And I have worked over the last 30 years with mostly with distressed couples. And I got hung up on the word feed. Because what the parable suggests is that you decide 
whether you're going to feed love or whether you're going to feed, for example, fear, you decide. And what I see in the relationships that me and all my thousands of therapists all over the world treat all the time is that it is true that we have ways of feeding our fear, feeding our anger. Perhaps I put anger in instead of hatred. It is, it is true that we have ways of feeding that. Um, we, we, we're vigilant. We remind ourselves to be careful. We tell ourselves other people will hurt us to the point where we only look at and see the negative things that people are doing and we, we wipe out the good things. So fear, for example, does have kind of its own self-fulfilling momentum to it. But what I see is that also um, it has a lot to do with your relationships. And, you know, I write about relationships. I write about bonding and attachment. I do studies on relationships. And what I see is that people can be really stuck in fear and anger and wanting to get things for themselves because they think if they don't do that, somehow they'll end up empty. They can be real stuck in that. And when their relationship opens up and they start to feel connected with someone else, it kind of has them flower. And, um, you know, they feel safe and connected. They can talk about their fears and get comfort. They can understand their vulnerability behind their anger. They don't feel the need to grab everything and grab everything for themselves. They actually believe that other people will take care of them. So I had a ton of thoughts. They weren't terribly simple, um, but that's kind of what came up for me. I teach therapists to be a third wolf. I teach therapists to be the wolf in the middle <laughs> that, uh, that says, oh, yes, of course, you are all caught up in your fear right now. Or, oh, yes, of course, you are all caught up in your anger right now and it's consuming you and it's taking you down this path where you don't feel connected with anyone and you're always trying to protect yourself and the therapist's job is really to be the third wolf in the middle and say I'm going to make it safe here and you can learn to look at your fear and look at your anger and you can learn to understand them and you can reach underneath them and talk about those fears and connect with people in a way that brings up kindness and the ability to risk and love for you. So in, we're all about creating love relationships. So so I have these rather complicated thoughts on your very simple parable, Eric. <laughs> That's great. So shifting gears a little bit into the book itself, Hold Me Tight. Yeah. One of your main premises, really the premise that underlies the whole book, is that romantic love is all about attachment and emotional bonding. Yeah. And that all the other things that we see go wrong in relationships are really a consequence. They become fights over emotional disconnection. Yeah. So share a little bit more about that with us. Well, I think what we've understood from... All the studies we've done of couples, we've got about, oh, I don't know how many now, 30 studies of couples 
help uh, showing we can help distressed couples and follow-up studies showing that our results last and studies about how people change, so many studies. Um, what we see all the time is that we focus on in relationships on uh, things that like conflict and how painful conflict is. But if you really, really look at what's happening in a distressed relationship, the conflict is the inflammation, the virus, the thing that gets everything going, the underlying music to the dance that starts to go wrong in a relationship is emotional disconnection. It's that somebody in the relationship starts to feel that the other person is unavailable, unresponsive, not engaged, and that um, triggers a whole reaction in us as human beings. We're bonding mammals, and it triggers a whole reaction in us where if I rely on someone and I, my whole world is kind of structured around them being there for me, um, that's a safety cue for my uh, nervous system. And if suddenly I find that the other person seems indifferent or they won't really engage with me or I can't reach them or I feel abandoned by them, rejected by them, that is a real existential threat. It impacts our nervous system. It's a basically a danger cue. It's a danger cue like stepping on a nail. I'll give you a good example. Um, a lady called Nancy Eisenberger in California puts people in brain scan machines and, and watches how their brain responds to certain stresses. And what she found was that if you give people, while they're lying in the brain scan, rejection cues from others, not even um, intimate partners where the rejection cues are even more important, but if you give people rejection cues, those cues are processed in exactly the same way and in the same part of the brain as physical pain. Physical pain is a danger cue telling you that you're in danger, you have to do something. And the feeling of rejection and exclusion by someone that matters to you or even just by other human beings is also a danger cue. This is kind of um, really looking at attachment science and understanding who we are as human beings and how much we need connection with other people. It's not icing on the cake, it's oxygen. It's like oxygen. We need connection with other people. It's our environment. Just like water is the environment of a fish, um, close connection with others is the environment that human beings are designed for. And when we don't have it, everything starts to go wrong. And this is a pretty well-known finding when we look at childhood, right? Yeah. A lot of the original studies are about between a mother and a child. But yeah. you've gone on to say, no, this is, this is what's happening at the heart of romantic love also. And originally, when you started talking about this, a lot of people did not agree with you. They oh, said yes, that, that's right. You know, they said that emotion was something that adults should control, that too much emotion was the problem that it should be overcome. And mostly, they said, healthy adults are self-sufficient. And so tell me, has that thinking changed since when you first started publishing your views? Yeah, it has. And I'm, I'm really glad it's changed <laughs> um, because I used to get attacked all over the place at, at conferences. And um, it has, you know, the attachment science has changed how we see children 
and changed how we parent children in the last 50 years, we now understand that you don't go and drop your kid off at the hospital for an operation and pick your kid up five days later. People forget that's what we used to do, even into the 70s. Right. Um, that you understand that that would traumatize the kid all to hell and it would impact how the kid would deal with being in the hospital, how the kid might even heal. You know, it, it would impact all kinds of things. So we've known that for years. It took years for people to accept that. You know, way back, people believed the best thing to do with a kid was when the kid was upset, you take the kid to their room and you tell them to calm themselves down and you leave them alone in their room so that they learn to be independent. Uh, this was the way we used to think about parenting. And now the same thing's happening with adult relationships. You know, round about the turn of the century, really about the late 1990s, there was sort of an upswelling of research into adult bonding. And the social psychologists and the developmental psychologists and a few, a few clinicians like me who were watching couples all the time interact in their offices basically realize that we're different than kids, but we're not. A lot of the same patterns, the same emotions, the same responses, um, the same vulnerabilities, the same needs. Um, they're there in adult relationships. And, you know, it took a while for that to get going and for people to sort of move away from this idea that is, you know, well, if you're a functioning adult, you've got to be self-sufficient. What I say is the only self-sufficient human being is a dead human being. They're, we're not wired for self-sufficiency. Um, your brain is a bonding brain. Your nervous system, when your nervous system and your brain were getting formed, um, you know, you were young, you were a child, and our children in our species are more vulnerable and more vulnerable for longer than any other species on earth. And when your brain was being formed, you knew, like you knew to take your next breath, that if you called and no one came, you were in danger. If you called and no one came, in the end, you died. So connection has always been wired into us. And this has become clearer and clearer and clearer over the years. What's interesting is a lot of the beginning researchers in adult attachment didn't start off by studying bonding. They started off by studying pain. Why did loneliness hurt? Why did loneliness seem to be associated with depression and people falling apart and suicide? And, you know, why did grief hurt so much? You know, what happened to people when they felt rejected? I mean, it started with this and it developed into an understanding that um, we grow up. Yes, we grow up, but our attachment needs and vulnerabilities go from the cradle to the grave. We don't, you know, our nervous system grows, but it's the same nervous system as we had when we knew that if we cried and no one came, we were going to die. And that's one of the things that happens in love relationships. People use images of life and death, you know, and people say, you're killing me, or, you know, if you leave me, I'll die. And I used to think, oh, this is just sentimental, you know, nonsense from romance novels. And now what I understand is, no, very well-functioning, very resilient people use these images 
because that's how our brain codes love relationships. Talkspace is therapy for how we live today. It's mobile, and it's available when you need it, and it's affordable. Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever. Simply provide your preferences for therapy, and Talkspace will match you with one of 5,000-plus therapists the very same day. And you can send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, and video messages from anywhere at any time. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Join more than 1 million people who feel happier with Talkspace. And one month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same amount as a single face-to-face session. Best of all, you'll never have to wait a week to share what's on your mind. Talkspace has more than 5,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code WOLF to get $65 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's promo code WOLF, and it's at Talkspace.com. I've told you before how much I love DoorDash. DoorDash has totally changed our lives, particularly with my girlfriend's mother who has Alzheimer's and would not eat a thing until... DoorDash came to the rescue, and every night she is ordering food and happy, and it is so easy. Even she is able to do it. You just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and your dasher will bring it right to you wherever you are. You can order from your local to-go's, or you can choose from favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code WOLF. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code WOLF. Again, that's promo code WOLF for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. One of the things that you talk about is that these emotional needs are neglected. This starts to become a problem, and out of it stem three things. You you call them demon dialogues. They're conversations that people get into, and there's three of them that you talk about. One is the find the bad guy, the protest polka, and the freeze and flee. So let's maybe just spend a minute or so on each of them. Okay. 
So again, this comes from watching thousands of couples interact. And also it comes from all the research on marital distress, which has also got going in the last few years. You know, we, we know that when a relationship goes into distress, people get stuck in certain predictable dances with each other. And there's a predictable muse, emotional music playing. The emotional music organizes the dance. It's, it's the structure of the dance. And people get stuck. And the most popular place people get stuck all over the world, and we teach therapists all over the world and do educational programs all over the world. So it's fascinating to me how this goes across cultures and religions and countries. But, you know, the one that really seems to dominate is that one person feels disconnected and starts to feel alarmed and starts pushing for connection, doesn't get much of a response and starts pushing aggressively and demanding and criticizing. Why don't you talk to me? Why don't you come home earlier? We never talk anymore. You know, you didn't do this chore for me, even though I said it mattered to me. You're not listening. And the other person feels attacked and rejected. And so they defend themselves and they shut down more. And the more they shut down, the more unconnected the first person feels, the more that person bangs on the door to get attention, to get a response. And the more they bang on the door, the more the other person moves away and shuts down. And you can see how this just keeps going. It sort of rolls. It's got its own momentum. Couples can get stuck in it for years and not ever sort of step back and see the dance. The, the dance just does them after a while, and they don't ever step back and look at the dance and say, oh, we're caught in this dreadful circle, this dreadful spin, this dreadful um, – people give it names, you know, this dreadful tornado. We're caught in this you know, um, dreadful, they don't do that. They, they're just all caught up in the dance. So that's uh, protest polka. And we see it, it's demand withdrawal, but we see it that one person is protesting the distance and trying to get the other person to respond. They're not trying to be mean, you know, or, you know, they're, they're desperately saying, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Right. And they're not getting a response. When that goes on for a long time, eventually, usually what happens is that the protesting partner starts to burn out and then they start to shut down and you get what we call withdraw, withdraw or reason flee. <laughs> yeah, you get you get two people putting up walls and nobody's out on the dance floor. And that's um, that also destroys a relationship because everyone's giving up. And usually when people come to see me with that pattern, um, it's because somebody's basically said, I'm going to leave, I'm done. And then the other person goes into alarm. And But they may have shut each other out for years. They literally don't know who the other person is anymore. you know. And they're trying to protect themselves to the point where there's no energy going towards the other partner. It's all going into this protection and after a while the protection becomes a prison right and the right. third one is find the bad guy all couples do these at various times but it, the question is whether you get stuck in them and whether they define the whole relationship but find the bad guy is usually when a couple are fighting and they can't get anywhere they can't get 
the other person to respond. It feels really bad. The criticism starts to go through the roof. And it's almost like they choose the booby prize called, we can't resolve this. We can't connect. We can't find safe connection. So I'll go for the booby prize, which is, it's not me that's the problem here. It's you. (laughs) And that looks like attack, attack. Most folks can't keep that up for long. It's too exhausting. So usually you see a distressed couple um, going into attack, attack for short periods, then going back to some sort of demand, withdraw, protest polka, where the real question is somebody's yelling, where are you? But they're yelling so loud that the other partner moves away. And then sometimes you get people in freeze and flee because they they're just done. They're overwhelmed. They numb out. They don't know what to do. But they still somehow know they want the relationship, but they're stuck, right? And what we do is we help people see these dances they're caught in and blame the dance rather than each other. And we normalize it. We say, oh, yeah, you know, you're stuck here in this dance. And, yeah, that really hurts. And that's really confusing and difficult. And look at how you trigger each other into the dance, you know, and people don't understand the impact they're having on each other. You know, withdrawers, for example, really don't get that when they shut down to protect themselves, they shut the other person out. And that triggers the other person into alarm and anger. And I've never met a withdrawer in a relationship, in a distressed relationship, who really gets that. You're so caught up in, in shutting down, you don't get the way it's impacting the person you're standing five feet away from you, you just don't get it. So once you start to get that, and you start to get that your partner's frantically trying to reach you and not trying to hurt you, actually, things start to shift, the, you know, perceptions start to change, and people have room to talk about more than their numbing or their anger, and we help them talk about the softer feelings they have for each other, the fact that both of them are scared, for example. In a distressed relationship, both people are scared. They just don't know how to talk about it and help each other with it. I have unfortunately lived all three of these demon dialogues, and it was very painful to sort of read, you know, looking back on a, on a previous marriage. I can see all of it. And, you know, being on the withdrawal side of things, you know, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, because it's really easy to point at the person who's attacking as the problem. Well, you're attacking. I'm just sitting here. You, you wrote somewhere in the book that the old axiom, when in doubt, say or do nothing, is terrible advice in love relationships. That's right. That was certainly my strategy a lot of the time. I'll be the calm one. I'll be the, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the bait. I'm not going to, but I saw it didn't take me reading your book to, to see it, but your book showed it to me so much more clearly, the role that the withdrawer plays in that also. And, yes. and I thought that you, you talk about that one of the things that you help people do is see the dance itself. You actually say, look at the circle of criticism that spins both of you around. There's no true start to a circle, right? And that's a really useful way. And it, it is, it becomes its own thing. That's right. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, you can think about your relationships 
you know, any relationship that's got stuck, you know, I mean, I, I, it's fascinating to me. I would be working with couples and be writing about this and studying it and doing research on it. And then my mother would, would visit from England, <laughs> you know, and within a seconds of her arriving, you know, it would, it would start with about five minutes of pleasant conversation. And then she would turn and say something, you know, no, no big deal, really, if it didn't have a history behind it. Like, good Lord, why do you wear that color? And my God, that hairstyle doesn't suit you. <laughs> and you, we'd be off. Yeah. We'd be off and we'd be stuck. And I basically um, flip between um, smacking her, you know, attacking back, and then we do um, find the bad guy for a while. You know, you're impossible. No, you're impossible. You know, you're dominating. No, you're you're a bad child. And you know, we flip. We do that for a bit, and then we'd flip into withdraw, withdraw for a bit. Um, but you know, it was so difficult to see the the dance and. To be able to say to my mum, hey, mum, have you ever noticed that we get stuck in this this silly thing where you turn and say something and I get upset? And so I turn and basically tell you I don't want to hear any of your opinions. And then you don't talk to me for an hour. And then we start all over again. Have you ever noticed that? And, you know, she said, do we, dear? <laughs> I said, yep. And we've been doing it for, you know, since I was about 12. <laughs> right, right. And um, it helped. It helped me not to demonize her, to see that we were stuck in that, you know, that that dialogue. It's a difficult one. I mean, it's, it's, you can see them, but... It's even when you see them, stepping out of them and keeping your emotional balance enough to step out of them, uh, you know, it's tricky, which is why people, I want people to read my book and do our educational programs, because there's now educational programs based on Holby Tight as well, um, you know, because it's, it's a tricky. Most of the times we don't see the dance, and even when we see it, we're not sure how to change it. Taking care of your health when you travel is really, really hard. I know because I tried to do it for years. At Weston Hotels and Resorts, they have a single goal, and that's to help you travel well. In fact, they'd say it's more than just a goal. It's their entire reason for being. Their range of wellness offerings have been curated with one thing in mind, and that's you. You'll find nutritious and delicious food on their new Eat Well menu, 
They'll loan you workout gear with their fitness gear lending. Forget your shoes, they'll loan you a pair, and you get a great night's sleep in their heavenly bed. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, and I am not joking, after I stayed in that bed once, I tried to find out how I could possibly order one to have at my house, because I loved it so much. And they have so much more. Because when you eat well, move well, and sleep well, you rise, no matter where in the world you travel. Welcome to Weston. And welcome to wellness. Explore at Weston.com, a member of Marriott Bonvoy. The book is based on, like the title says, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. And, and the first few of them are these demon dialogues, right? And then you go into uh, sort of the tipping point conversation, which is called a hold me tight conversation. So tell me a little bit about what that is. What we noticed when we worked with distressed couples was that we would help them see the cycle. We would give them safety and help them talk about some of the underlying music in that dance where, you know, um, people who were withdrawers would usually talk about feeling rejected, like they could never do the right thing. They were always going to fail. So they they stopped trying and um, more blaming folks would start talking about how lonely and abandoned they felt and how they were never sure they were loved. And when they start to talk about that, they can kind of create a safety, a platform in the relationship. But that's kind of just taking control of the negative cycle that's bringing up loneliness and disconnection and distress in the relationship all the time, then we, we learned that that's not enough to change a relationship. You have to also create a positive dance. And so what does that positive dance look like? Well, you've got to have a, an image of what are the key things that need to happen in a relationship. What are the key moments that need to happen to create a really positive dance, a secure bond. And so it helped a lot to have all the science of attachment and bonding, you know, behind us and to understand what we were trying to create. Basically, the research says in a secure bond, the main variables that create the bond as secure and stable are emotional accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement. And that spells A-R-E, accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement. And it's interesting because from my point of view, the main question in love relationships is, are you there for me? Can I reach you? Will you come when I call? Can I rely on you? Do I matter to you? Do you care about my pain? Will you be there? Will you accept my vulnerability? These are the things that, that come up and people can't even put words to that. Uh, lots of times. So what we started to realize was that when we help couples create these bonding conversations where they where they could talk about their fears, you know, people could start to say things like, um, I do shut you out. I shut you out because I'm so scared that all I'm going to hear from you is that I'm a big disappointment. And I was a big disappointment in my family and I can't bear it. If when I see that look on your face and I'm getting the message that I'm a big disappointment from you, so I turn away and shut you out, I do, because I'm scared. So there's somebody talking about their fear instead of acting on it and shutting their partner out. They're letting their partner in and they're taking a risk. 
but of course, what that does is it evokes compassion and caring from the partner. The partner sees their vulnerability. And then we help that person talk about their needs. And what I need, what I need from you is to feel accepted and to know that I can make mistakes and that I don't have to be perfect. And even if I don't know what to do sometimes or I do things wrong, that I'm your special one. I need that reassurance because I do want to be close to you. I do want to dance with you. I just get scared that you're standing back and keeping score. And then I freeze up. But I want to be close. But I need your reassurance. So when somebody does that, they pull their partner towards them. That pulls. And I'm talking about an organic process here. I'm talking about the way our emotions are structured as social bonding animals. I'm not talking about, you know, um, something you learn from a book. I'm talking about an organic human response. When people show their vulnerability like that and ask for their needs to be met, it really, really pulls for the other person to respond. And if the other person can't respond, we help them with that. We, we help them with what's blocking them and what's getting in the way. But what we saw was when people would be able to talk about their fears and needs like that, incredible bonding situations happened where people would just come together they would share their fears and needs. They would, trust would open up, connection would open up. Um, we just respond to those moments with joy. You know, they're what Hallmark Cards is all about. They're what all the love stories are all about, right? This moments of connection with other people, their emotional connection, where we can read their intentions, where we tune into their emotions where, you know, people even mimic the way each other moves. You know, um, uh, birds do it in mating rituals, actually. You know, you watch a couple in a hold-me-tight conversation. He'll lean forward. She leans forward. He he uh, reaches out his hand. She reaches out her hand. You know, they're, they're their nervous systems are tuned into each other. And this naturally elicits joy in people, just like, a beautiful sunset or a beautiful piece of music, our nervous systems are just wired for it. And what we found was that when people had these conversations, we call them hold me tight conversations, um, at the end of therapy, they were out of distress. And three years later, when we checked on them, all the results were stable. And they told us they, they had felt more secure in their bonds. They weren't just out of distress. They were more intimate. Their sex life was better. They felt more secure in their bond. Um, you know, and it was like, oh, wow, what, my God, and what, wait a minute, what's happening here? You know, the, the first study I ever did on EFT, I got these enormous results. And I thought, wait a minute, what, how could, what? I didn't believe them. I ran the data three times. And then I thought, I don't really understand why we got these results. But a few years later, looking at more and more tapes, you know, and, and reading about adult attachment, which had just started to really get going then, I got it. I got, wait a minute, these are bonding moments. These are the moments that we are just wired to take as life-giving and crucial and important and 
These are survival moments. Our nervous system just sings in these moments. This is what falling in love is about. This is what staying in love is about. These amazingly emotional moments when you feel connected with somebody, you know, you can't have them all the time. I mean, it's just not possible. But when people have these, um, basically everything improved. And I mean, everything. It was quite mind boggling to us, not just the relationships, but if one partner was distressed, they became less depressed. They became less depressed. If one partner was anxious, they became less anxious. If one partner had post-traumatic stress disorder, they were able to turn to their partner when they got flashbacks and seek comfort and acceptance. PTSD symptoms went down. It still fascinates me after 30 years um, how powerful these hold me tight conversations can be. And, you know, we, we help people do them now in our hold me tight educational programs. And you see the same thing. You know, I was in San Francisco. I did a Hold Me Tight weekend for 100 couples, which means there's 200 people in the room. And some of the people said, oh, we don't really need this. We're happy. But, you know, we just thought we'd come along and see. <laughs> and and then they come up at the end to me and they say things like, I never knew I could feel this close to him. And I've never felt this close to him. And I didn't know you could feel this. and Thank you so much. And even distressed couples, you know, it's just an a relationship education weekend. Distressed couples will come up and say, we get it now and we want to be close and we're going to go work on our relationship. So there's a power here. We plug into it with our therapy and our teaching, but the power is there. It's about who we are and how much we are, as I say in the book, we are homo vinculum. We are not just social animals. We're the one who bonds. And that's our ecological niche. If you like, that's, that's water and we're the fish. That's what we need to thrive. And when we get it, when we get that kind of connection, it's a source of joy. It's a source of strength. You know, um, it changes everything. I mean, we've even done a brain scan study where when you have that connection with your partner, um, you don't respond, your brain doesn't respond the same way if I tell you I'm going to shock you on your feet as if you're, when you're alone in the machine or when you don't feel connected with your partner and your partner holds your hand. Um, we can, we've actually shown that this sense of emotional sense of connection changes how your brain deals with, with threat. You know, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Right. Well, that is a beautiful place for us to wrap up, Sue, on a really positive note about, about how strong relationships can be when we get this bonding piece right. So thank you so much. Yes. You and I are going to talk a little bit more in the post-show conversation. I want to talk about uh, conversations that heal injury that happened in the relationship. Big okay. Injury forgiveness conversations. You and I will do that. Listeners, you can get access to the post-show conversations, uh, exclusive mini episodes, ad-free episodes, all that stuff at oneyoufeed.net slash support. So thank you so much, Sue. I really appreciate your time coming on the show and I found the book a real revelation. You're most welcome. Bye. Bye.
If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.